chapter 2, but I also want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 1. And as you're finding your way to those two texts, I'll make just a couple of comments about Acts chapter 2. This is, as they say, on the church calendar, Pentecost Sunday. And no doubt about it, for centuries, God's people have been thrilled about this day because this is the day that we remember when the Spirit of God empowered the church of God. And on that great and glorious day, the Spirit fell from heaven upon all of God's people. And it was proven and demonstrated with the disciples speaking with tongues and men and women from all nations acknowledging that God was present and doing something marvelous. That was later verified with the salvation of 3,000 souls. An amazing thought. And God's people for the last 2,000 years have longed to see something similar happen. We have longed for the same kind of an outpouring to take place. There have been times in the history of God's people, the history of Christianity, when we have seen great outpourings of God's Spirit. But something that is very interesting that we find in Acts chapter 2, and really it's prefaced in Acts chapter 1, is a unity, a true unity of God's people. In fact, if you remember, the Lord Jesus told the disciples that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And so there they were in Acts chapter 2, waiting. Verse number 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. I don't think that there is a single born-again child of God that is not waiting, truly desiring for the Spirit of God to be poured out and for souls, countless souls to be saved. But that will not happen unless something drastic happens to God's people. We cannot expect that kind of a demonstration of the Spirit of God whilst God's people remain divided, careless, casual, and comfortable in Babylon. We cannot expect God to rend the heavens and pour out His Spirit in revival if we as His children are not what we ought to be. There are a few, I believe. There's always been a remnant of people, always been a few who are waiting, earnestly, sincerely, walking as close to God as they can. There's always been a remnant of faithful children of God. But I wonder this morning, where do you stand? Are you truly waiting? Are you truly ready? Everybody knows something has to change. If you have watched the news at all in the last few days, you've seen the absolute turmoil that the United States of America is in. And all over the world as well, there are problems rising, protests. I was watching some of the news reports here 
recently of the protests happening around the United States of America and all that is happening, supposedly because of, of course, because of, of the injustice that took place and the killing of a man by a police officer. But now one injustice is being followed by many more injustices. One crime is being chased by thousands of more crimes. And it seems to be growing rampantly and wildly out of control. We're finding more and more bad news all over the world. God's people know something needs to change. But can I suggest that the greatest change that needs to take place at the present moment is a change amongst God's people. A change amongst us. If you read the historical accounts of great revivals of the past, you'll often find that some of these revivals took place after God's people got thoroughly right with God. After God's people got right with Him. And can I ask you this morning, are you right with God? I want you to take God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. I have finished my own personal studies in Isaiah over the last few several weeks and have begun now to look at the book of Jeremiah. I want you to look with me, please, at the first ten verses. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Jedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, under the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord, God, behold, I cannot speak. For I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build, and to plant. Here we have in the Old Testament God raising up someone to speak to his people. And not just his people, but all the nations of the world because at that point in time, his people had become so mingled with the heathen that the address that was to be given was not just to the people of God, but to the nations of the world. It's interesting, the name Jeremiah means he whom Jehovah has appointed. Appointed by God. It's interesting, in a time like today that we live, in a time of national and international calamity, 
God always raises a man or men. If God intends to do something in a nation or in a people or in the world, he raises up someone or some people to use to accomplish his work. You've heard the quote by E.M. Bounds. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. If you read J.C. Ryle's little book in regards to five English preachers, reformers, You'll read in the opening chapters, he speaks about how in those days there were giants in the land. He wasn't talking about physical, literal giants. He was talking about great men of the faith. One of the things that Pastor Paul Bassett says when I speak to him on the phone sometimes is, where are the giants? Where are the men of God these days? Where are the likes of a Charles Spurgeon or the likes of a George Mueller or the likes of a Hudson Taylor or an Amy Carmichael or Gladys Aylward? Where are the John and Charles Wesleys and the George Whitfields and the Jonathan Edwards? Where are they today? Where are these kinds of men? First thing I want you to notice in our text is the calling. God called Jeremiah, he chose him as a tool, as a vessel to accomplish his work and his will. It's common when God ordains a man for his work, it's very common for that man to be doubtful. It's interesting to me, we live in a day and age when men are very arrogant and proud about their calling. And they're very flippant oftentimes about what God has told them and very careless about what they believe they've been ordained to do. But here's a man after God had called them very much like Moses. You remember when God called Moses? Moses said, God, I can't do that. You've got the wrong man. I can't even speak. What about Gideon? When God called Gideon, oh, thou mighty man of valor. Gideon says, who, me? But here again, after God tells Jeremiah that he had called them, Jeremiah's response was, Oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Jeremiah, most believe, was around 18 or 19 years old when he first began his prophetic ministry. 18 or 19 years old, and a lot of people say, Well, you're, you're just a young lad, or you're too young to do anything for God. I remind you the words that Paul wrote, to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. I remind you that David was only 17 years old or so when he slung that stone and killed Goliath. I remind you as well of, of the likes of Hudson Taylor, 17 years old, surrendered to the Lord, 22 years old, stepped foot in China. and would later be the one who would lead a great missionary endeavor throughout all the massive country of China. I remind you of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who began to pastor when he was 17 years old. If God calls you 
go. If God puts his hand upon you, obey. We're living in a day and we're living in a country and in a part of a world where nobody talks about the calling of God upon men today. When nobody wants to talk about the idea that God chooses men to use for his work. I'll remind you of that 13th chapter of Acts. And God said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. Is God no longer calling men today? Is God finished with that chapter? Is he finished using men? No, no, it has is, it is pleased God to use the foolishness of preaching. And so God continues to call, to call men and to call women to his work. In some way or another. Verse number 7. The Lord said unto me. Say not I am a child. For thou shalt go. To all that I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee. Thou shalt speak. When God calls a man. He calls him to send him. He doesn't call someone. So they can sit home and relax. And write theological works. Nothing wrong with writing. We need them and we have benefited greatly of the writings of many of the great men of the past. But there's a call, a purpose for the call on which God places upon a man. Acts chapter 13, they were in the church that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands, their hands on them, they sent them away. Because the calling of God preceded the sending. By the way, on the flip side of the coin, there have been many men walked into a pulpit today who have never been called of God. Far too many men who claim the pastorate, who have never been called and never been sent by God. I wonder, have you been called? Has God been dealing with you? Is God calling you and sending you to do his work? Look what it is that he sends this prophet to do. Verse number 10. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. Not like a king. He hasn't been set to rule the nations and he hasn't been set to rule the kingdoms. He's been set to preach and prophesy to all the nations and kingdoms to whom God sends him. Look at the message. And I believe this is a message for us today. I believe it would do our country well to take Jeremiah as our prophet and to take Jeremiah's message as our message. The message is a very interesting one. Six instructions. Six words from God to the nations. Six words, you could say, from God to our nation. We find it in verse number 10. Jeremiah had been set up to do these things 
to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. Set to root out. I'm convinced today that if there's ever going to be gospel fruit, there must first be a rooting out of our nation and a rooting out of our own hearts and our own churches. There's a lot of rubbish that needs to be removed in order for the gospel seed to take root. I'm reminded of that parable in Matthew chapter 13 when the Lord Jesus told the very first of the kingdom parables. You are familiar with it, I'm sure. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man, he says in Matthew chapter 13, a sower went forth to sow. And when he had sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And Jesus explains the parable a little later on in the same chapter. And he explains that the seed had fell amongst a ground filled with thorns. The gospel seed had fallen in soil where there were already roots of another plant taking root there. The Bible says in verse 22 of Matthew 13, He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. If we ever want God to do a work in our hearts and in our nation, there must be an, a rooting up, a rooting out. Roots are under the surface, not seen with the eyes. In Mark chapter 4, those thorns, those roots are identified as the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things. Would you like God to do something in your life, in your church, and in your nation? And it's time we got the shovel out and begun to do a little digging. It's time we began to root out some things. The cares of the world are often roots that choke the gospel. Uh, I, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to partake in all of this. I'd love to be a more faithful Christian, but I'm just too busy. Have you heard that before? I, I, I've got to work and I've got to pay the bills and I've got to study and I've got to go to school and, and, and how am I going to, I need a new pair of shoes and the car's broke down and there's a problem with the family and I've got to go here and I've got to go there. And the cares of this world begin to choke out anything good in your life. And how many times have you met somebody who showed an interest at one point in time in Christianity but the cares of this world has absolutely choked out any sort of resemblance of Christianity. Choked out anything good that once may have been there in their life. Well, if we ever want God to do something in our lives, you and I need to be bold enough to root out the cares of this world and not let the cares of this world overgrow in our hearts. I wonder this morning, what cares, what is it in your life right now? What cares 
seem to be preoccupying your mind? What are the things you're thinking about now that instead of thinking about the Lord Jesus, instead of thinking about his kingdom, instead of thinking about revival, you're so distracted by the cares of this world? The deceitfulness of riches is another root. The idea that having money is going, to, is going to somehow make things better. The deceitfulness of riches. Riches lie to you. The lie that if you have more, everything's going to be, be better. Paul said there'll come a day when people will think that great gain is godliness. Couldn't be true the day in which we live right now. And some will make merchandise of you. Boy, it's happening. The scriptures tell us this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 10, that the love of money is the root of all evil. And Jeremiah, God said, I have set thee over the nations to root out everything that's a distraction from that which is good and godly. The cares of this world, the love of money, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things, always wanting something else. We're prone to think like this, aren't we? We're prone to look at our homes and think, what next can I do? We're prone to look at our car, our automobile, and think, well, what's the best car I can get right now? We're prone to look at all that we have and think, I need an upgrade of my mobile phone. I wonder, what's the best phone I can get next? And the desire of other things, if we're not careful, all of these things have filled our lives. The field of our hearts is filled with all of these roots. And if you expect God, do you expect His Spirit to break through and do something great? We've got to root these things out. Root them out. Well, God says to Jeremiah, I've set thee over the nations to root out and to pull down. Roots are beneath the surface, underground. The author of Hebrews talks about a root of bitterness defiling many. I wonder, perhaps, you've got a root of bitterness growing deep in your soul. It needs to be rooted out. And then he says, I've set thee to pull down because there are some structures in your life. There are some walls and some buildings in your life that shouldn't be there. And you've begun to build a long time ago, one block at a time. You've begun to build some things that have no business in your life and they need to be torn down. High things you've begun to build, they begin to manifest themselves on the surface of your life once they hid beneath in the form of a root. But now they've begun to be built above the surface and now the whole world can see. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 we find that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That's what Paul writes. But they're mighty. You see, we are in a spiritual battle. And sometimes we look at things and we try to discern and judge by what we see, don't we? And that's not altogether wrong. Because we shall know them by their fruits. And oftentimes what's on the inside will manifest itself by things that take place on the outside, by the things we say, the things we do, the way we live, the way that we respond, the way we spend our time. But the battle is a spiritual battle. Make no mistake about it. 
people looting and burning buildings and shops, people stealing and setting places on fire and in protest. No, no, no. It's a spiritual battle. No amount of police officers or National Guard will ever control that problem because this is a spiritual problem. The virus that we seem to be battling is not a, 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 an, an enemy that can be found beneath a microscope. I'm not suggesting that there isn't a virus, but what I'm saying is there's always something deeper than what meets the eye. And so Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't fight with guns and knives and machetes and we don't fight with words and with fists. No, no, no. Our weapons are mighty, the spiritual, mighty through God to the pulling down. They have this capability. Our weapons have this capability to the pulling down of strongholds. God said to Jeremiah, I have set thee over the nations to pull down strongholds. In this country and around the world, you, you'd see a fortified city or a castle, and you'd have the outer castle walls. And in the very center, you would have the castle keep, the safest point of the castle. And if an enemy was attacking, you would run to the castle keep. Any royalty would run to the castle keep. Anyone of important status would hide there, the safest point. And can I tell you, would you look here for a moment, some of you, have built up strongholds in your life. And the moment things get difficult, you run somewhere inside of your mind and somewhere inside of your heart. You run to that keep. You run to that stronghold. That's, your, that's how you cope. Instead of facing the problem, instead of dealing with it, you run and hide in your stronghold. You have a sin that you keep running to and you hide in it. Or you have a frame of mind, a mindset that you revert to when things get difficult. In Jeremiah, God said, I have appointed thee to tear down those strongholds so that people can no longer run and hide. But instead that they would run to me. I wonder this morning, what is it that you run to when things get tough? Casting down every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. It's amazing to us how silly we are as human beings, amazing to me how silly we can be as human beings, that we can somehow imagine we know better than God. After we get so many things wrong, we'll argue, we'll argue about silly things, won't we? We'll argue about uh, how, what the speed limit is on such a road, and we'll be convinced, fully convinced, until we go and see for ourselves that we were wrong. We'll argue uh, about the opening hours of a shop and we'll swear by it that we know exactly when that shop opens until we're proven wrong. And we get such silly, menial things wrong, but yet we still insist that we've got it right in regards to God. We get such little, flippant, menial, unimportant things wrong so frequently, so regularly, but yet we could not imagine that we could ever get it wrong in regards to God. And the scriptures say, Jeremiah had been appointed to cast down imaginations. Those sort of reasonings in your mind. Every high thing 
that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. See, that's the work that God set Jeremiah to. It's a work now that in the New Testament, as a child of God with the Spirit of God living within us, it's a work that we ought to be involved in individually in our own lives, but also helping others. You see, at one point in time, you ran, ran to that stronghold. But now, if that stronghold is torn down, we then arrest our thoughts. And instead of allowing our thoughts to run and revert to that stronghold, we bring those thoughts to Christ. And Jeremiah had been appointed to root out, to pull down, and to destroy. Interesting. Over and over, we find in the New Testament this thought. And uh, we were reading together with some of the men at the men's prayer and fast at the beginning of the week, looking and studying at the book of 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 8, the scriptures say, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. God said to Jeremiah, I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms, to destroy, not to destroy people, not to destroy their lives, but to destroy the works of the devil. That's what Christ came to do, his work on the cross. And it doesn't stop there because if you remember, we are commanded in the New Testament over again, mortify the deeds of the body, destroy the deeds of the body. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it very evident the great struggle and the great battle within every human being. He says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 that the the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. This is why you've got such a battle and a problem inside. Flesh versus spirit. Well, the only way to win that battle is for the works of the flesh to be destroyed. Is for self to die. For self to be crucified. Now that goes entirely against the nature of humanity, doesn't it? The modern world today says, no, 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 no. Not self-sacrifice, self-preservation. You live for you. You do what you want to do. Preserve yourself. Do what feels good. Do what you want to do. And sometimes they like to add the idea, well, we still do nice things and thoughtful things for other people as long as it's beneficial for me. But we find in the New Testament, I die daily. I am crucified with Christ. This is the Spirit. And so uh, Paul writes and again in Galatians 5 and verse number 18, if ye be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Means they're, they've been revealed, they've been shown. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. The verse, verse 4 deals with sexual immorality. Verse 20, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, 
that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at that list there. Think about that list for just a moment with me, please. We all want to be filled with the Spirit of God. We all want the verses that follow, don't we? The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We all want that in our lives, but there will not be that in our lives as long as the other is present there instead. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You can't have that as long as the works of the flesh are there. So God says to Jeremiah, I have anointed you to root out, to pull down, and to destroy. And then he says to throw down. And that idea there is to utterly conquer and utterly destroy. It's the idea of, uh, I've been doing some gardening over the last couple of weeks in, in, our, in our home, much needed. And uh, we pulled out a lot of weeds and clipped off a lot of bushes and trimmed a lot of things. Well, it's no good to pull all of those weeds and all of those in, invasive vines. No good to pull all of that out and leave it laying on the floor for it to take root again. No, it needs to be rooted out and then destroyed, utterly conquered. I meet many a Christian that says to me, I keep having the same problems. I get victory over a certain sin and I seem to be doing well and then it catches up to me again. And I'm down in the depths and down in the dumps again. It's a constant roller coaster and a constant battle. And God says to Jeremiah, let's get ultimate victory, utterly destroy it. Before there be any revival, God sends in his demolition crew to clean, clear the land. That's what any building crew does. If a builder buys a bit of property and intends to build a housing estate, he first clears the land and removes all obstructions, and then he builds. A gardener doesn't go and plant his seeds just on top of the ground. No, he first gets a tiller out, and he tills the land, plows the land first. And upon plowing the land and removing the weeds and the stones, then he plants. And don't you think God, after giving us such an illustration in nature, don't you think he does the same? The last two words of instruction that God gives to Jeremiah is to build and to plant. There'll be no building if there's not first a demolishing. There'll be no planting if there's not first an uprooting. Everybody wants a mansion on a hilltop. Everybody wants a lush green garden, fruitful garden. There won't be any fruit in your life until we root out all the rubbish. Then we can build. Then we can plant. I was listening, talking to a dear friend this week, and he quoted this hymn. O breath of life, come, come sweeping through us. Revive thy church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us. And fit thy church to meet this hour. O wind of God, come bend us, break us, till humbly we confess our need. 
then in thy tenderness remake us, revive, restore, for this we plead. O breath of love, come breathe within us, renewing thought and will and heart. Come, love of Christ, afresh to win us, revive thy church in every part. Revive us, Lord, is zeal abating, while harvest fields are vast and white. Revive us, Lord, the world is waiting. Equip thy church to spread thy light. One last little thought and we'll close. You see, God doesn't just give Jeremiah this commission. He doesn't call him and give him a commission and then say, go for it, buddy. I wish you all the best. No, he, he comforts him. He gives him a promise. And that promise is bathed in the reality of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Now I've circled I. This is God speaking. I formed thee. I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And if God formed you, and if he knew you, and if he sanctified you, and ordained you, and called you for a certain work, and if he sends you, as verse number 7 tells us, and he commands us, don't you think if God has ordered all of this, don't you think that God's going to do something, he intends to do something? Then look at your own life. Oh, you may not be like a Jeremiah, a prophet like Jeremiah. Maybe God's not called you or ordained you to this kind of a ministry. But has he saved your soul? Has he given you, has he called you into his, into his work in some capacity? If God has saved you and kept you alive till today and put something in your heart to do, don't you think God is going to perform it? And that alone ought to keep us going. He goes on. The greatest comfort and the greatest promise that God could have given Jeremiah is found in verse number 8. Be not afraid of their faces. Can I just say to you this morning, don't fear man. Fear not man who can destroy your body, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee. The greatest comfort that could be ever given to a child of God is the promise of his presence. You remember what Moses said, I'm not going anywhere, God, unless you go with me. Because he knew that with the presence of God came a fearlessness, came a power, came an anointing to do what God has called each one of us to do. I love that 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Verse number four says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. The shepherd is with us. He's with us. And if God has called us to whatever it is he's called us to do, he'll be with us. One of my favorite hymns is that hymn, I Could Not Do Without Thee. A beautiful hymn. 
I could not do without thee, O Savior of the lost, whose precious blood redeemed me at such tremendous cost. Thy righteousness, thy pardon, thy sacrifice must be my only hope and comfort, my glory and my plea. I could not do without thee. I cannot stand alone. I have no strength or goodness, no wisdom of my own. But thou, beloved Savior, art all in all to me, and weakness will be power if leaning hard on thee. I could not do without thee, for years are fleeting fast, and soon in solemn silence the river must be passed. But thou wilt never leave me, and though the waves run high, I know thou wilt be near me and whisper, it is I. You see, if we know those words, if we know the words of our Savior saying, it is I, I'm with you, then we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. God is calling his people, just as he did in the days of Jeremiah, to root out pull down, destroy, throw down, to build and to plant. This is the day. This is the time. What is it in your life that needs to be rooted out and pulled down and destroyed? Let's get to work. Let's get to work. Then we can build and plant and see a great harvest after the demolition crew has been sent in. I believe God desires, desires to do a great work in the land. But there first must be a clearing. There first must be a clearing of the land in order for that to be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before thee this morning and perhaps there's been a little bit of a tinge in our hearts as we consider things that may be present in our life that shouldn't be there. Perhaps there are some things, Father, that need by thy Spirit to be removed, to be pulled down, to be destroyed. We ask of thee, Lord, in mercy, please help us. Help us to do what we have been called to do. If there are any distractions in our hearts, Lord, please reveal it. And then help, Lord, please. that We might be cleansed and sanctified and purified and ready for a real building work to begin, a real planting to begin. And help us, we pray. Oh, we long to fulfill those words that we've heard from the prophet Isaiah. They that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. But Lord, there first must be a clearing of the waste places. Help us, we pray. Lead us by thy spirit. Reveal unto thy children this morning the things that need to change in order for Revival to come. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.